0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people. And tonight, it's night here in the U.S., my guest is Michael Rhodes, who is in Australia. I've really enjoyed preparing for this interview, listened as usual to quite a few hours of his recordings and read quite a bit of, I think it is his most recent book, Let me give you a little bit of biographical information and then I'm going to make a bit of a statement, more than I usually make at the beginning of interviews, just to sort of put this in context. Michael was born a farmer's son in Cambridgeshire, England in 1937. From an early age, he discovered that he had a natural ability to travel beyond linear time and space and enter into deep communication with nature. Since his spiritual enlightenment at age 49, Michael has written 19 books on his experiences and explorations. Of alternative realities and dimensions. His main focus and teachings are based on unconditional love and emotional balance. 2016 marks his 25th year of traveling over five continents, presenting inspirational and life changing five day intensives in a clear, compelling, humorous, I'll attest to that, he's a funny guy, and no nonsense format, enabling many participants to experience amazing shifts in consciousness. Michael, an ordinary mystic, weaves his wealth of life experiences with the most extraordinary insights, insights that offer pathways to our deep spiritual relationship with nature and with self. He has the consciousness and ability to empower people to gain understanding of the true nature of reality and assist them in their spiritual awakening to their divine potential. His website is michaelroads.com, R-O-A-D-S, and we'll be talking more about that a little bit later. And the statement I want to make... A couple weeks ago, I did an interview with Penny Kelly. And she was a pretty far out lady, by most people's definition. All sorts of amazing experiences, uh, talking to elves, traveling around the universe and so on. And I was interested to see, a little dismayed to see, um, how much negativity, how much flack that evoked from some people, um, calling her a liar, calling her crazy, things like that. And I just wanted to harken back to an interview I did a couple of years ago with Daryl Anka, who channels a being named Bashar, and we started that interview by talking about the distinction between skepticism and cynicism. Skepticism, we defined, or he defined actually, as a kind of a open-mindedness, but taking things with a grain of salt and asking skeptical questions, and just but just having a healthy attitude, not being cocksure of yourself that you, you know everything, basically. Uh, whereas cynicism would be the tendency to reject things that don't fit into your paradigm, into your worldview. Personally, I feel that the universe is vastly more mysterious and marvelous than we can even imagine, and that all kinds of amazing things might be true, that uh, or at least we should be open to the possibility of their being true, that far exceed our personal experience. So I kind of like to keep an open mind about things, I give pretty much everybody the benefit of the doubt, because if they say they're experiencing something, who am I to say they're not? I have no way of proving they're not. But I also take everybody with a bit of a grain of salt, because I'm not just going to believe everything everybody says, neither should anyone in my opinion, and uh, I try to ask questions that will help me better understand their perspective and see if it seems to hold water for me. And I, I must say that reading Michael's book over the last week or so was a fascinating experience for me. It, it just sort of expanded my horizons of what might be possible. But as I was reading it, I kept thinking, man, people are going to slam him for this. <laughs> you know, it's, some of this stuff is so far out. I think personally it would be beneficial to anyone listening to keep an open mind and see what Michael has to say. And uh, it might just expand your horizons as to what it's possible for a human being to experience and what it might be. You know, possible for all of us to experience over time. So as I said, that's a much longer introduction than I ordinarily give, Uh, I just wanted to lay that foundation. And now let's introduce Michael again, I already read his bio and here's Michael. So thanks Michael, I appreciate you doing this.
1: It's okay, that's okay and I'm really happy to be here.
0: What did you think about what um, I just said?
1: Well, I think it's very fair what you just said, there's a difference though. You're talking about people being sceptical, and I couldn't imagine anybody not being sceptical about people like me. But on the other hand, I very rarely talk about it, and all my intensives, I seldom ever talk of my experiences, and I talk of unconditional love and emotional healing, etc., etc. And so, if you're going to try to cajole me into talking about things I normally don't, then you might have an uphill struggle with that because I'm actually rather sensitive to the public. I don't feel there's any point in slamming doors by making outrageous statements. In other words, I long ago learned that truth is always truth, but it isn't truth out of another person's timing. So in the simplest form, one person could say, see my fantastic garden, that's all done by organic gardening, and the neighbour says, oh, rubbish organic gardening doesn't work, and he could look over the fence, see the evidence, but he's still not ready to believe it, and when I was a farmer, I experienced exactly that. I had exactly that experience. In Mm -hmm. fact, the agriculture department in Tasmania, all those years ago, I was blacklisted. I was considered a dissident and an agitator.
0: For doing organics. For going organic and talking about it in public. Well, let me ask you this. I haven't read any of your books other than the one you sent me, and that was full of all kinds of amazing things, which I thought were fascinating. I intend to finish the book as, as time allows. If you don't talk about that stuff in your seminars, in your, in your retreats, why do you dedicate a whole book to it and possibly other books to it?
1: Because I've never done anybody else's seminars. I've walked my own path all my life. Years ago, when I was a kid at school, I would uh, always line up the teacher with the window. And, you know, this took a while to develop, a year or two to develop, but I, had a, I was a very right-brain, highly imaginative, heart-first child in a very left-brain, intellectual-type school. And I just didn't know what they were talking about. It just didn't make sense to me. So I would line the teacher up and then stare at the teacher and begin to imagine them shrinking. (laughs) And I got so I could shrink them down to about the size of a glass of water. Mm -hmm. But the nice thing was when I'd shrunk them down, and that took months, but when I shrunk them down, I was shocked to realize other people could still see the teacher. Nobody else seemed to realize this has happened. But their voice went with them, and so I couldn't hear them either. And then it occurred to me, you know, this was peaceful, nice, peaceful room. I couldn't see the teacher hardly or hear him. But then I thought, well, maybe I could go out through the window with my imagination. And so I gradually began to work on things in the playground. And I'd go out and see certain things that I'd have seen there. And they were like that. But then I took it to a woods like 20 miles away from where I lived that I'd never been in, the beach woods. And I began to travel in there. While I'm bod- my body's sitting in the classroom, and to me, I was daydreaming, it was as simple as that, no problem. Daydreaming. And I would go into the beech woods, and uh, when I eventually went there on my bicycle, I had noticed certain things that I wanted to see, and they were there. And it really hit me, I thought, my God, my body's in one place, but I'm in another place. Then I got to be a teenager, that course kept me at the bottom of the class because I really didn't have much clue what was going on in class. Yeah, what would happen so if crossed, you were off
0: in the beach woods and the teacher would ask you a question? Would you snap back? And I
1: could snap back, yes. Yeah. I could keep an eye on them. But then they had to get big fast, and that really happened. <laughs> so I got called out as well. Many times I got called out, until I'd hear this voice, Rhodes, Rhodes, and then I'd come back, because mm. that was my cue. But... Uh, but then when I, I discovered girls, and that was the end of that, and then I got married very young, I was only 21, and, um, in England, working on my father's farm, and then he proceeded to die, and the next thing is we're emigrating. But the point is, when I emigrated to Tasmania, Australia, um, my whole background from 14, I left school at 14, was farming. But Something happened in that, in that um, moving away. Something that happened was, and I could put it this way, when we're born, a soul is born and a personality is born. But we don't see the soul, so we all call it one, a little baby. Generally, soul is on its journey and personality tends to go on the journey that the parents steer it on. And that is to be successful. Mm. You know, you've got to make a lot of money. You've got to be successful. Um, I don't know when that ever got together, money and success, but it's sort of, people still think that craziness. And that didn't go well. But when I emigrated, actually what happened was, soul and personality did come together. Because I'm suddenly doing something. I hadn't a clue what I was doing. You know, I'd been an arable farmer in england in other words we grew corn and we grew wheat and barley but here now suddenly i'm a i'm a beef farmer and dairy farmer and i didn't know a thing about it but these two parts of me came together the soul and the personality and that was that created its own dynamic it created a magic which went on to change my life hmm.
0: I've heard you tell your story about how, you know, you, the timing was terrible, you got this big drought, you know, a lot of your cattle were dying and you're, you're just going through all this stuff. We don't have to go through that in great detail, but the first really significant spiritual experience that I recall you relating in that phase of your life was when you were taking a lunch break and lying on your back and looking up at an eagle. Uh, would you like to talk about that one?
1: Yeah, you've done your homework. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was lunchtime and I'd been on the tractor all morning. And this is, you're right, this was absolutely one of the turning points in my life. And um, I switched the tractor off and had my sandwich, and I was just about to get back on the tractor, you know, five minutes. But I suddenly realized how silent it was, incredibly silent. And I thought, wow, you know, you can always hear birds, you can always hear wind in the trees. And I'm surrounded by thousands of acres of forest and couldn't hear a sound. And I thought, this is weird so i laid down and stared up at the sky and going above me above me going in a spiral above me was an eagle one of our witch tailed eagles i lay there for a few minutes looking at it and this quiet this noise no noise it deepened and i looked at the eagle And of course what would you think well wow, i wish i could fly with an eagle and suddenly there's like a movement and i'm looking from the eagle's point of view down to me looking up and i almost lost it but this energy held me and then i looked at the farm and then i looked at where my cows went in the forest and i didn't know that from the eagle viewpoint and then i realized that the eagle was looking through the eyes of immediacy it was looking through the eyes of the immediate moment and i realized i didn't do that in fact i realized humanity doesn't do that we look through the eyes of the intellect through the eyes of our knowledge through the eyes of yesterday, through the eyes of our beliefs, our religions, our expectations, our wants, on and on and on, but not nature. It looks through the eyes of immediacy with absolute clarity. And then the eagle, as it looking down, everything changed and the vision went metaphysical. It's like an enormous gulf. i moved right through the land, opened it up, of course it wasn't there physically, and I'm on one side and nature's on the other. And I suddenly knew this was the gulf of separation and I decided my life is I need to cross this gulf to nature on the other side and when I realized that then the eagle sort of swooped down and suddenly I'm back in my body moving towards Doubtsville, you know that place where everybody doubts everything Mm. and you don't even believe your own experience. I spent a lot of time in that, that place but the point is, yes, that changed my life, because it took me 15 years, 15 years to, um, to cross that gulf. And then when I crossed it, I realized one thing, A, it doesn't exist, there is no gulf of separation, but I had to cross it to know it wasn't there. And B, it wasn't just between me and nature, it was between me and myself, mm. the being I am and the personality I always a thought that I was. So it was a 15-year journey, which was a little bit slow for me, I'm Aries, mean, We like getting on with things.
0: 15 years, so when I read that introduction, it said you had a, your spiritual enlightenment when you were 49 or so, was that the 15-year mark or was that much later?
1: No, that was much later, I left the farm and um, travelled around Australia, I, I sold the farm eventually, travelled around Australia, four kids and my wife and I'm all the time looking for me. Mm-hmm and on a journey of fear and it was not much fun at all. We can pass over that. Well, you had a hell of a
0: time with health problems, really horrendous health problems. There's a real interesting thing where before you start having all those health problems, you sort of made an ultimatum, like I want enlightenment by the time I'm 50, right? And so then all hell started breaking loose in your body. Well, when I was
1: 40, I made that ridiculous statement. You know, I was hurting. I was in really bad trouble. I'd hurt my body very badly, I'd ruptured a disc in my back, the whole disc had degenerated. I was a mess, and when I was 40, I said one day I was with a spiritual being, a much greater being than me, and I said, you know, I'm not enjoying this, I've had enough. I, can we have an agreement? And the being looked at me cautiously, I said, if we could have an agreement, I want to be awake and self-realised, or spiritually enlightened, whatever you want to call it, by 50 or dead, and let's co- I'll come back and do it again. I don't want to keep doing this." Well, the being looked at me for about half a minute and then nodded. When I came out of that experience, metaphysics, I thought, oh God, what have I done? But on the other hand, it fitted in with my nature. I'm mean, Aries with Scorpio rising, you know, I'm always head down, charging, and if I stop, down comes a sting, and away I go again. <laughs> and so at 50, at fifty I was in big trouble, oh, sorry at forty-nine and three months I was in serious, serious trouble because that, that decade as you said was horrendous, Yeah, it was really bad,
0: I was in big trouble. There's a saying with regard to karma which is that if, if the postman knows you're going to move, he tries to deliver all your mail, <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like you're getting some heavy mail deliveries for about a decade.
1: Sounds like some a bit of dogma in that karma as well.
0: <laughs> right. We'll get back to this, but your allusion to that being implies that at the age of 40-ish, you are already kind of having metaphysical travels and communion with other dimensions and all, all that kind of thing. You, you mentioned it well, quite matter of fact as, as
1: I say, when you realize I began as a child, yeah. when I was on the farm in Tasmania, I began to go out on the fields with questions, sit down and meditate and come back with answers. And so gradually my life changed as a farmer and I became one of Australia's leading organic farmers. But that change was changing me. It was completely changing me. And so gradually I reached a point where I would look back on my youth and think, what did I do? And so I began to revisit that and see if I could still do it and found that I could. And over the next quite a lot of years, I've honed that down to quite a skill. I could now walk along a beach and let my body keep walking and um, I could move away and be elsewhere. But I tried it in a park once and walked into a tree, slam dunk into a tree. So beaches are okay, um, as long as there's no people around.
0: Yeah, and you don't step into the water. And uh, don't try it while you're driving, please.
1: No, 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 not a good idea. Most people are stopped from doing it by fear because, you know, you're really moving into the unknown. Mm -hmm. So let's just look at this. What are we? We have an English word, individuality, which if you slow it down a little bit, and I often use this in intensives, in divided duality, Mm. individuality, in divided duality. Of that duality, there is the physical, there is the... um, the mind, the brain, the physical, and um, the mental and emotional person. And there's the metaphysical person. Now the metaphysical being is immortal, connected to the soul. The physical is mortal, connected to personality. And so for most people, 90% of their life, probably 99 but I'll be kind, is based in the physical and mortal. When I started, what I did as a kid, without realizing, I was setting myself also on the direction of metaphysical immortal. And today, I like to feel that pretty well. I've brought them into a seamless whole. Mm-hmm. So I live with the the physical mortal, the personality immortal, and the metaphysical and the immortal. I, I I merge them and move them around. Everybody can do it. It's not a it's not a Michael Rhodes exclusive but you know I was very fortunate my father died when I was young with no will that changed my whole future and things like that that I saw as the worst things could happen were the very you know were great fortune for me and put me in places where I really had to grow
0: yeah and you say everybody can do it and I believe you but uh, I've never really encountered anyone whose experiences of other realms and other dimensions were are so were so detailed and with such variety and richness, and I'm, I'm still going to like trick you into talking about some of these things.
1: Oh, that's a, no, no hey, don't, don't have to trick me, I'm not, I'll,
0: I'll Wait, be discriminating. Okay, yeah, we have ways of making you talk. But actually a question just came in from one of the online listeners. Uh, Joan in California asks, in his books and in his description of the eagle just now, Michael seemed to indicate that animals and even plants within their own species are connected energetically and with some sort of awareness. How much awareness does the animal kingdom experience? Is there awareness beyond the mere instinctual behavior?
1: Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, all nature lives consciously. Um, As you probably know, most of humanity lives subconsciously. And we live subconsciously pretty well all our day. You know, one of the things I teach is to be conscious, because subconscious isn't okay, it doesn't cut it. And so, nature. If you want to, shall we say, you want to communicate with a tree, the tree is in that moment. Now, the person who wants to communicate it thinks. We think around about 60,000 thoughts a day. Every thought takes you out of the moment. You cannot think your way into the moment. The whole idea of meditation is to be silent and to come into the moment. So you can think your way out of the moment, but you can't think your way into it. So think about that, Rick, sometime when you're not thinking. (laughs) You, You can only think your way out of the moment. Now a tree can't do that, and so it's always in the moment, and always conscious in the moment. A human being is very rarely in the moment, and so they're in a place that is subconscious. Because to be in the moment, you've got to be fully conscious. You can't be subconsciously in the moment because sub is less than fully conscious and the only place full consciousness can be is in the moment and so you can't be subconsciously in the moment and so therefore a human being when they're communicating with nature has got to move into the moment with them and i could tell you a lot of stories about that you've got to be in the moment with nature with the animal with the plant now um, all, all species, everything in nature and everything in human, is energy. As you probably know with your many interviews, we're 99.9% energy. If you take all the space away from all the protons, neutrons, electrons, etc. in our cells. And so, we're basically space. Um, I think all humanity would occupy the space of a sugar cube. Yeah. Okay, now, therefore we're space. All nature is space. That space is energy, that energy is consciousness, and all energy and all consciousness carries information. It's full of information. And so we have the ability, if we use it, to connect with that information, which is energy, which is consciousness. And so nature is doing this within its own realm the whole time. And there's a flow of information flowing through all species, all the time. The only species outside of this is humanity. We use something dumb called Internet and pay to do it, and then don't believe what we say to each
0: other. (laughs) Well, let me ask you this. Um, The Sufis have a saying, which you may not like based on what you just said, but let's see what you think. The the Sufis have a saying that God sleeps in the rock, dreams in the plant, stirs in the animal, and awakens in the human being. And various spiritual traditions hold that there's this sort of hierarchy of uh, evolution, uh, in terms of spiritual evolution, and that, you know, for the most part, only the human species is the, of species that we commonly know about is capable of spiritual enlightenment. And we're going to have to define what we mean by spiritual enlightenment here. Um, but do you buy that at all, or do you feel like there could be enlightened cabbages there- and, and rocks and trees and whatnot?
1: i buy it to a degree. Everything has consciousness. Every rock has consciousness. And, um, and therefore it's growing. It's a slow process and we don't hang around to watch a rock grow. But everything is, a mo- everything is the movement in the moment of consciousness. Everything. Enlightenment, well yes, we could define that later. But in nature, because everything lives in the moment, everything moves with, with consciousness in a very natural and organic way. It doesn't have to choose to grow. It grows because that is the process of nature. We're a part of the process of nature, but we've separated ourselves and alienated ourselves. And so even in humanity, you see a hierarchy of ability. You see a hierarchy created by money. You see a hierarchy of spirituality. Now, none of this implies for a moment superior or lesser. It doesn't imply that at all, but it... If a person spends um, all their life sitting by a, a gas pump and becomes the Buddha, <laughs> then they have put energy into something and then they get something from it. So in the spiritual hierarchy, they've just risen a little bit. They're no superior, but they've learned more because of their focus. And where we focus, energy flows. And so I, a long time ago, did that. So in nature, and I find with nature spirits... And with the David kingdom, yes, there is a hierarchy. But there isn't a hierarchy of superiority. That's not even a concept in, in a real world. That's just a concept for us.
0: Yeah, so I mean, these different nature spirits and Devas and so on they refer to, they just serve different roles, wouldn't you say? Like players on a baseball team. The, the catcher isn't better than the first baseman. They both are, are essential to the whole team.
1: That says it well. Right. That says it very well. Now, let's jump in. In that hierarchy, there is something, there are nature spirits, which many of them are about the size of a pinhead. We don't see those. You see, and here's an interesting question for some of the listeners who get a bit sceptical. Let's just say you're walking into a park. You walk into the middle and there's a bed of roses, you know, made 20 metres across, a really serious bed of roses. And you're looking at them, and as you look at them, you suddenly see like tiny, t- semi transparent things look like a bit like a bee. And you really get up close, and it get, comes right up to you, and it looks like a fairy. And then you realize there's tens of thousands of them all over these roses. And um, you're looking at them, thinking, oh my God, I, c- I can see nature spirits. Oh my God, this is incredible. And then, a little by away, a coach stops about 30 people get out and stretch and come walking down to the rose bed and they just stand there looking at it. And you look at their faces and nobody's saying, oh, my God, look at all these fairies. And you you don't ask somebody, can you see the fairies because you're pretty straight and you can't do that. The question is, can you still believe your own reality, which is now not going to be reinforced by 30 other people? Now, for 30 years, I found that difficult. Incredibly difficult, so I was sceptical with myself to an astonishing degree, incredibly sceptical. So in all this mishmash, you know, one day I'm in, I, I'm walking over, I go over a river bridge, and I look into the water. Now you're getting the real honky dinky die story. I look into the river, and it's winter, and this is in the subtropics, and the water is crystal clear. And the sun shines through it, and all the rocks, beautiful river rocks, turn bright green because it's winter and it's very clear. But one of these rocks is completely like this size.
0: And winter for you guys means it's warm, right? That's what you call it. And winter. our
1: winter is warm, but right, the water's right. not warm. No, okay. The water's cold. So this one, this egg looking thing, is completely pure white almost, or actually a pale cream and I kept staring at it thinking this doesn't make sense every other rock is green why is that one not green and so it called to me it said bring me out the river and I said no 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 we don't want to do that it's deep there anyway nobody this was in that way out in the country in a river valley and I'm standing on a bridge looking into the river and I thought okay well nobody's been over here in ages so I'll go in so I strip off all my clothes so I'm naked and go into the water which was freezing, and pick this rock out, I had to dive down to the bottom. And, of course, I'm walking back with it, and the car comes over, and five people stop the car and stare at me. The water water was so cold, they are probably trying to work out if I was male or female. Anyway, anyway, I took it home, and it spoke to me, and it called me, it told me it was a guide stone. And I asked him, what, asked him what that was, but anyway, it didn't tell me. And so every now and again, I would bring it in, put it in the sun and then soak it in, out, um, in a bucket of water. It seemed to want that. One day I'm going to do a workshop and it said it wanted to go with me. So if anybody ever tells you they're going to take a big rock to a workshop, don't go. <laughs> and so I took this stone and there's about 25 people at the workshop and this big stone... I sat it, kept it in a a bag, nobody saw it, and after lunch, I decided to try something clever. I put it out in the middle and invited everybody to go into it. And I mean, you know, some of them said, how do you do that? And I said, imagine, because that's another story, imagination. That's something I talk a lot about. Imagine. And so they started doing their thing, and I'm sitting looking at it, and I'm thinking to myself, that's very peculiar, there's a little hole in it. Now I've had this thing a year and looked at it minutely and there was no hole in it, but I'm sitting there seeing a hole and I thought this can't be possible. So I put my hands on the arm of my chair and leaned forward to look closer because I wasn't going to do this with every, like everybody else, you know, I wanted to be with it in case somebody gets a wobbly going, occasionally can
0: happen. What does that expression mean, somebody gets a wobbly going?
1: Wobbly. Well, you know, they get a little bit um, upset. Oh, they I... get in there. think they can't get out. All I see. Right. So I like to keep an eye on the people. Anyway, so I leaned forward and looking at it, well, what happened, Rick? And this was not nice. This was in my earlier days. It's as though the essence of me was sucked out, Like, and I could see the smoke, like mist, coming out of my body, sucked across the space and went in through this hole. Now, all my experience, suddenly, is going with this metaphysical me and being sucked into the hole. And it freaks me out. But what really did this was bad. I couldn't move. My body had turned off. Now, that doesn't happen. You don't get things like that happen. You know, I've been a very practical farmer all my life up until this, and nobody turns your body off. And here I am, sitting there, holding on the arms of this chair. I can't even blink. Now I'm moving into a vast cavern, an incredible-sized cavern, um, which is freaky to say the least, and I cannot move my body. And in this cavern there is a voice, and this voice is running up and down the scale of madness, as, far as it felt like to me. And it's saying, run, 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 run. run. And all I wanted to do was run. But I couldn't move my physical body. I could not get it to move. So I couldn't run. I swear I would have run out the room. There's no way I wouldn't have run. And so in this cavern, this other me is shaped up now. There's me standing in there, me sitting on the chair. The me sitting in the chair is now beginning to sweat. I've got tears running down my eyes and my nose is beginning to run. And I still can't move. That is not nice. I'm being brutally honest here. But I'm back in this, I'm in the cavern the whole time. And then this little idiot, me in the cavern, starts walking into it further. Like, no, 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 don't do this. Let's get out. Let's come out. No, it continues walking in. And the voice is going, run, run, run. And it took, seemed to me, like for two months I'm walking further into this ta- cavern. That's what it felt like. And and all the time this voice is running up and down the scale and, and for... This probably lasted 10 or 15 minutes, and I am freaking out on this chair. Anyway, I, as I walk into the cabin, I see a pair of doors, and they go from one side of the cabin to the other and meet in the middle. Enormous! I mean, this cabin's as big as the inside of the world. And I look at them, and I'm, I'm feeling tired and exhausted. And then this album, me, this a voice changes what it says. It doesn't say run. It says, if you open these doors, the full force of nature will pivot in your being. I've never forgotten the word. Well, jeepers, you know, this wasn't going to happen. I want to get out of here. Well, I still could not switch my physical body back on. It's real in a mess now, I'm telling you. And this other me um, sort wants to put his hands on the door and open them, and he's exhausted, completely exhausted. I instantly knew there were six people in the room. I could suck the energy out of them. Terrible. And I did. I took the energy out of them. Six people who nearly fell flat on the floor. They felt drained so fast and so hard. In fact, I, they didn't. two of them refused to be my friends after that. They just felt I should have done it, but I didn't know what I was doing. And so suddenly I've got energy and I push on the doors and they fly open. And I thought, oh God, now what I've done. And there's this other world, Earth, just floating in front of me. And I, I know that Earth very well. That's what I call a fifth dimensional Earth. That's the Earth I call Terra. We're on Earth, that's Terra, T-W-R-A. And then there's Gia, which is a bit further away. So this was an Earth that didn't have humanity on it. And then this being comes walking away from it, walking across space, and in a moment is standing in front of me and I knew this was Pan. didn't look anything like Pan, uh, but I knew this was Pan, and... Uh, and by Pan told- you don't
0: just mean the guy with the little flute, you mean the sort of the intelligence of nature.
1: I mean, I mean, I'll explain that. I mean, and it took me years to sort of really come to this, what I feel. Pan, the god of nature, but this god was dressed like a, a good-looking movie star, had a pair of jeans on, a t-shirt, and had a face that was semi-human, but definitely not fully human. The forehead and the head was too big. Utterly, totally beautiful. An incredibly powerful being. Now, this is where our relationship began. I refused it, of course. Skeptical didn't get close. But this is how it all began. I'll leave the story there. So w- within an hour, I put that away. Well. You know, when, when I came out of, the, out of this egg thing, I look around, I'm, I'm ready, I'm, suddenly I can move. I'll end it properly. Pan talked to me a bit and then said, you're exhausted. I said, yeah, I am. So he put his hand on my shoulder and suddenly I could move. And I wanted to fall on the floor and cry for the next hour. So I get my handkerchief out and gradually mop myself up. Nobody else had noticed. Twenty minutes had gone by instead of three months. And I didn't have a beard dragging on the ground, but I was a hell of a mess, emotional mess. And so when we, I gradually brought them out of it, and then I got them to share and managed to gain another hour. And at the end of an hour, I felt that I could stand up. And so I got through it without them too badly knowing, except the six who all demanded to know what had happened to them. Mm. That was my first introduction. Through the years that relationship changed Pan withdrew from anything even metaphysical so today Pan for me is simply the spirit of nature Pan is the intelligence that expresses through all of nature, it's not a being it's not a person, it's not a thing, it's not a god, it's not it's just an expression of intelligence that is so far beyond ours, I don't try to think about it too much because it hurts my brain, but This beloved Pan takes me in his care and I don't know what I, well, I do know what I did to deserve it because I wrote that in the book too of Through the Eyes of Love. There was a connection made before this human
0: experience, but uh, that's another story. Well, let me uh, ask you some questions that segue out of what you just said and and hopefully put it in, in context. I can put myself in the mind of some people who will be watching this, and they'll be saying, well, this all sounds very interesting and far out. And if you and I start talking about some of the other things that you've been experiencing and describing in your books, they'll think, yeah, yeah, very entertaining, far out. He's playing around in the astral. He's going through all these subtle dimensions, all these subtle realms. But what does that have to do with enlightenment? I want enlightenment, the person might think. I want self-realization. I want to know what the ultimate reality is. I don't want to get hung up in some subtle strata where you could just play around for all eternity with any number of far-out possibilities, but never get down to the real nitty-gritty of your true ultimate nature. So you say you had, you awoken or got enlightened when you were 49. Let's delve into what you actually mean by that and then address that um, hypothetical objection that I just brought up.
1: Okay, well actually I would agree with those people. This is why I don't talk about this sort of thing in my intensives. In intensives, people call me a spiritual teacher. I look at it differently. There are two ways to live. One way works, one way doesn't work. Probably 95% of humanity lives in a way that doesn't work for our well-being. And so we die far younger than our potential. I'd like to teach a way that works, as simple as that. Mm-hmm. So I'm absolutely in that favour of that. I don't teach stuff that, uh, you know. What I travel metaphysically, I travel and I write it, I journalize it, mm-hmm. and then I turn it into a um, a flow, and then it goes to the public. They choose whether they read it or not, but that isn't so much what I teach. Okay. So when you say what is enlightenment now, this is good. This is getting to what I like. Good. What is enlightenment? Enlightenment and I'm serious, is no more than leaving kindergarten. You know, this is a kindergarten planet. Most perhaps, souls on this planet are young souls. Now that becomes a paradox, because souls are ageless. So how can you get young in ageless? I could tackle that one later if you want, but we'll just say, this is for young souls. Now, enlightenment is when you, if you go into a kindergarten, kids beat them, keep poking each other in the face, Stick fingers in their eyes, pull their hair, and, and it's a battleground. And, and you know, and it keeps several kindergarten teachers very busy to keep the kids amused so they don't tear each other to pieces. Because that, part of our in that youth, we do that sort of thing. Well, this is a young planet. And so, enlightenment to me, one, it happens in the moment. And so, if I look back and say, yes, I was 49, but that's not me, that was the body then enlightenment never leaves the moment if you grow in consciousness with enlightenment enlightenment grows now this is a lovely subject I like this the things we think are enlightenment generally aren't people look on enlightenment as a goal and so when I became enlightened I knew that I was the one thing my body healed you know I had had 20 years of terrible back pain I never had more than three months out of it. And when the moment I was enlightened, my body healed, cellulitis was gone like that. My insomnia finished. All those years of pain came to an end. I don't do back pain anymore and haven't done since that time, 30 years ago. And so there is a, in your consciousness, you know who you are. You know, I was very aware of who I am. Now, I certainly thought this was it. You know, this is it. You go and sit on the mountaintop now. Whoever did that cartoon was not enlightened. Then I went onto the plateau, this is my term, the plateau of enlightened complacency. In other words, you jumped up on the mountain, and here's this plateau of enlightened complacency, and there are several other enlightened people sitting around, equally complacent. And I sat there for a couple of years and thought, well, this isn't much fun. You know, what, what am I supposed to do now? then I decided to come off the castle, off the mountain. So I came down and what I found was that there is um, a junior school. And high school is not in this time frame and not in this reality. But junior school is. And I thought, well, what I probably ought to do is go and um, get into first grade. So I then joined the junior school and went into the first grade. And I think I'm somewhere around fourth, fifth grade now. And I don't expect to... Outlast Junior School. I think it'll still be here when I've gone. So enlightenment is a process of growth, of being conscious. If you become enlightened, now this gets fascinating, enlightenment is holistic. The only thing that is physical about you is your body, nothing else. Your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, your imagination, your intuition, your insight, all that is metaphysical. None of that is physical. And so when you become enlightened, you connect with all that in a very much deeper way. You realize that you are all that. You're not that body. You're this metaphysical aspect. And so when you're in the moment, all that is with you and continues to grow. Now, your emotions and your mental mental and emotional body are incredibly powerful. People say we think and therefore we are. Wrong. We think, and that creates emotions, and therefore we are, because emotions are our powerhouse. Now, people go to university, and they train their thinking, they train their mental body, and they get so-called clever, taking more and more deeply a grip on stupidness with the other hand. But as they get more and more clever, they don't realize, okay, we can grow our um, intellect this way, and we've done a great job with it. But did you go to an an emotional university where you could grow emotionally? Nobody does. And so as we get older, we think our emotions are growing. No, the physical body grows. And so we, um, you see many people in their 80s are like children. In fact, they call it the second childhood. It isn't the second childhood. They never left the first one emotionally. They simply lived in a way that was acceptable. And when you get 80, you don't give a stuff about what's acceptable or not anymore. You know, I'm only one year away from that place. And they really don't care. So they go back to being their own emotions. They live them. And and sometimes on a good day, they can be as good as a six-year-old. And I'm not making fun of this. This is a very, very common situation. And so, to me, holistic enlightenment is is spiritually, mentally, and emotionally all one together, and you are emotionally complete. Do you know the mental's no problem? If you've got spiritual enlightenment and emotional completeness, your mental body just shapes itself up easily. There's nothing much to do with that. Now, there's a lot of enlightened people so-called who've got their ticket back because they're emotional children still.
0: So what you're saying then is enlightenment, by, by your definition, is a holistic, a holistic development. It's not just the awakening of consciousness, but it's also emotional unfoldment, mental unfoldment, just sort of the, all the facets of or the aspects that make us up have, have all been developed to a very high degree. I would even throw in there the physiology, I mean you said that when you had this awakening or this enlightenment your physiology healed. Of course there are people who undergo radical healings and remission from cancer and all that who wouldn't consider themselves enlightened, but in your case at least that was part of the package. So is that a fair synopsis of what you just said? It's the holistic development of all aspects of mind, body, spirit, personality, emotions, whatever whatever components there may be that make us up.
1: Every component is, a, is involved, yes. Mm-hmm. As I read the books when I was younger, and I read um, Joel Goldsmith and people like him, Paul Brunton, Vera Stanley Alder, probably nobody today can remember them, but I read those sort of people. I always got the impression that Enlightenment was completely out of reach, just too high up on the shelf. But I tell people today, it's on the kitchen table. If you look between the butter and the marmalade, there it is. You could reach it that easily. But um, if you can't see it, then you need to turn 365 degrees because we have the ability for this. Everybody has the ability for this. But unfortunately, people on the spiritual path put it in an unreachable place and it's my potential. And while their potential is there to reach it, they create the space between them and their potential. And so their potential is going to have to spend a long time trying to reach it because they created the space between themselves and enlightenment and their potential. And we do this stuff all the time.
0: It, we're called clever. And yet you said a few minutes ago that you could be enlightened by your definition and yet still be in first grade relative to what might be possible. So it would seem that you're just sort of using the word enlightenment to signify a, a certain important milestone, but that there must be much more beyond that. Um, at least that's what I, I would
1: I would define enlightenment that as we move into it, it's rather, like, um, it's rather like, as you spend more time consciously with it, it grows, you grow, enlightenment grows. Mm-hmm. And I've realized long ago, enlightenment has no ceiling. There's no, We say, I am enlightened and that's fine, we can say that, but the personality isn't. The only thing that's enlightened is the part that's making that statement. It's not a statement I would make in normal life, right. you know, that's waving the red flag and what is it? I mean, if you've got big feet and swim faster than anybody else and win the Olympics, you'll get a ticker tape parade through the city. But if you went there and said, I'm an enlightened being, this has taken me five um, lifetimes to achieve, no ticker tape parade, just a little room for a silly little person to go and sit in until they realize that they're mad and then they can be dealt with.
0: (laughs) So, aside from your physical healing, which was quite dramatic, really, especially considering how much you'd been suffering for years before that. How would you say your life changed at 49 when you reached this stage, uh, what you call enlightenment?
1: I do not experience fear, Mm -hmm. I do not experience fatigue, I don't get tired, I don't stress, I don't get angry, now I did about 7 years ago, that was the first time in 20 years and it didn't work then, so I don't think I'll do that anymore, Got angry so I don't get angry.
0: Yeah.
1: Once in 20 years it didn't work, so mm-hmm. I don't get angry anymore. I don't, get st- I don't, get, I don't criticize myself, I don't, I'm not self-critical, I don't judge myself, I sleep well. You know, all those little things. My relation, in other words, what is enlightenment? Your relationship with yourself is your relationship with life. It's life's relationship with you. Enlightenment is you fall in love with you. Mm. But that fall in love is not the end of love. Because when you fall in, as you fall in love with self and you become more conscious, then love has a relationship with you. So I have a relationship with what I call love. Now let's get this clear. Love is not an emotion. Somebody's just written a New Age book about love. And the first chapter says love, the uh, most powerful of emotions. They're still writing this rubbish. They don't even know what love is. Love is the power of creation. God did not have emotions and out of it came earth. You know, love is the power of creation. So when you're loving yourself, You're enlightened. You're loving yourself. You can be a complete idiot, and I manage it quite often. It doesn't stop my relationship of loving myself. I could look at myself and say, okay, well, that wasn't too clever. We won't do that again, and finish. Gone. That's it. Whereas once, I would have sat and berated myself for a day on it, something stupid, you know, beating myself up. Now... I don't beat myself up. I leave that to other people. They can beat themselves up trying to beat me up. That doesn't work either. And so I have a relationship with myself based in love. Now, when you're loving yourself, you are loving yourself. It's like in your life. um, This is why I write on my Facebook, choose love every time. In your life, love becomes a constant. Now, you don't have to define it. What is this? You don't have to define it. There is an energy, and that energy is supportive, and that energy is is a a constant. And the more you focus on that energy, the more of a constant it is, and you feel good with it. And gradually, though, as you do this, life becomes a dance. And you're, you're not in a ballroom, but you're dancing in life, and life is becoming beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful experience, and you're loving it. And you realize one day that your dancing partner is love. You're dancing with love. And love is beginning to change. Because as you dance with love and you connect more and more deeply with love, and we'll never connect fully because we're still in the process of growing as human beings. And when you connect more and more fully with love, gradually love begins to change you and create, recreating you in its own image which is the image of creation. But equally, in this exchange, you begin to recreate love in image of self, not the personality, but the image of self of who you are. And this creation is utterly unique to every human being. And in this creation, God expands, God grows, consciousness grows. And so every human being is on this process. Some of us are on this planet, but, you know, we decide we're human beings. We're not actually we're souls having a human experience. We're not always human, and so we we tend at that hierarchy to put humans at the top of it. I don't do that. I put humans as a very worthwhile part of that hierarchy, but we haven't reached yet what we will one day become. And so this this thing of of um, enlightenment is is. Really deepens your relationship with yourself. And that is the most vital relationship you ever have. When you're loving yourself fully and completely, sickness doesn't. Help. I don't get sick. I don't do sickness because I'm. I, why would I get sick? I love me. I look after me. Why would I get sick? This doesn't make me a freak. And if anybody's listening, say I don't believe it. That's fine. That's okay.
0: No, that's okay. I have several questions based on what you just said. I want to sort of make sure I get them all in here. But um, before I do, let let me just, I want to honor people's questions because for weeks we haven't had our question thing working properly. We finally got it fixed, and I think it's going to work every week from now on. And so a question just came in. We'll wrap this one, we'll we'll handle this one, and then I'm going to get back to some questions of my own based on what you just said. So um, Bruce from Minneapolis asks, I find that sometimes I feel very tuned in, quote, And then 20 minutes later, it's gone. Two days later, it comes back. How do you stay attuned or tuned in?
1: Then when you're tuned in, be aware of what you're feeling. Be aware of where your thoughts are. When you're tuned in, you're not thinking out. You're quieter. You'll find that his inner space is much, much quieter. That literally is tuning in. So that's what you do. You do less from the head and more from the heart. You know, if you want to sit down, if you want to talk with a tree, wanting is a space between you. If you decide, I will talk with that tree, you haven't created the space, and you can communicate with the tree. But if you want to, you've created a want, and want and desire do not communicate with trees. Do you see how subtle it is?
0: So it sounds like there's more of an immediacy to being tuned in the way you would define it. There's fewer filters in between you and whatever you're experiencing. The
1: more you're in your heart, the more you're in your whole brain, and the more you're in the moment, and the more you're tuned in, and your world gets bigger in that moment. I have a friend, a, a very close relative, who's brilliant, you know, way up on the IQ, brilliant. He's brilliantly clever, but his world is so small. It scares me how small his world is, and yet he's brilliant. You know, he's well over 140 on the IQ, but his world is so small.
0: I think Bruce and others might ask, well, it's easy to say, but boy, you know, I have this hectic job and I have three kids and there's so much going on in my life, whatever degree of being tuned in I occasionally achieve gets disrupted by all the chaos that I have to deal with on a daily basis. How would you answer that?
1: My answer to that is, in every moment of your life, you are creating the direction and the content of every moment of your life. So if your life is full of chaos and you have no time, then you've created that situation. If you're deciding that you want to move on to your spiritual path, then you have to, there's certainly a discipline required, and you certainly have to make a decision, okay, I'm going to put aside some time every day, and that time is for me, as an immortal soul that I can get in touch with that aspect of myself. If you make that decision, you'll do it. For many people, television, and I'm not suggesting with Bruce, but for many people, television, newspapers, CNN, continuous negative news, all those are
0: more important. That's a good answer. I mean, um, in my own life, I learned to meditate when I was a teenager and I thought, whoa, this is really effective and and it's it's really important and I'm just going to do it no matter what. And, you know, I've done it in bus stations and on airplanes and all kinds of situations because I just felt like I, if I stick to this uh, routinely, it'll it'll pay off for me.
1: Let me take you to the peak of arrogance. Okay. I don't meditate. I wake up in the morning. I know I'm wonderful, That mm-hmm. I'm going to have a wonderful day. And that's what I focus on. And that's basically what always happens. That's great.
0: So let's get back to the line of questioning. I wanted to follow after the previous thing you said before Bruce. A lot of times enlightenment is defined, uh, and, and if you le- read the traditional scriptures, you'll find it defined as sort of a, a, an experiential realization of the essential wholeness or unity of life. One realizes, well, there's these sayings in the Upanishads such as, you know, I am that, thou art that, all of this is that, that alone is. You know, one sort of, real, that, that sort of, oneness of life wakes up to itself in and through the instrumentality of, of a human entity. But when you defined enlightenment a few minutes ago, you were saying, well, I love myself and, and I, I, I'm free of fear and, and this and that, and it all sounded like sort of had an individual flavor to it. So in in these scriptures, very often there's a distinction between self with a small s and self with a capital S, you know, capital S, small s meaning everything that makes us up as an individual, capital S meaning the sort of universal consciousness, uh, you know, like the waves and the ocean. So do you concur with those traditional descriptions, and did you just sort of put it differently when you were talking a few minutes ago, or what?
1: I would need to add to my story. I absolutely concur with those, and... One of my subjects I enjoy is oneness, and that is one of the Mm -hmm. the amazing things you get with oneness. What I'm trying to get across is enlightenment is not an ending, it's a beginning. Right. It's it's not a ceiling, it's you can see a ceiling, but the point is, okay, I I was 49, then I continued on with my life. In 2006, my wife died, my late wife, and in 2007, I traveled the world on my own, and it was a very emotional time for me. I was, you know, after 48 years married, 52 years with a person from when you are 19 or 18. You know, I was, it was pretty devastating for me. But I applied what I teach. Anyway, so at the end of the 2007 um, intensive tour, I had recovered. I'd gone through a process, and I'll mention this because it might be of interest. And I wrote a book about this, talking with my late wife. And I was in France, and I was having Reiki, and she was suddenly there. I knew her energy signature. And she said, I was full of congestion. She said, you're full of congestion because grief attacks your lungs. Mm. And I said, I am. I know I am. she said, why don't you stop playing with emotion and deal with it? I said, so what does that mean? And she said, well, why don't you take it straight to your soul and feel it? And then you can get on with things again." I said, what do, you mean fear? what do you think I've been doing for the last 18 months? Feeling it. I said, what do you think I'm crying at? A technique? I said, I've been feeling it. She said, no. She said, you've been playing with emotions, the emotional game. Let it touch the soul you are. I said, well, how do I do that? She said, I don't know, but you'll know in a moment. I can't tell you, but you'll know. And so, Would you believe, five minutes later, I knew how to do that. Don't ask me, because I can't tell you either. Anyway, I brought this pain of loss to the soul, and it was like the most exquisite pain. It was a pain, terrible pain, and yet terrible joy at the same time. And then next day, I brought up mucus, and I began to recover. Two weeks later, I'm on top of the world feeling fantastic. Lost a lot of weight, looking great. And I went to America, where my organizer was waiting for me. And um, this organizer, I'd known, she'd been through a um, separation, and I'd known her for 15, 20 years, and to my shock horror, I find I'm falling in love with her. And I thought, this can't happen. And you know, I just can't do this, I'm 70, I don't fall in love anymore, this is not right. You know, I am, I'm married, and I thought, don't be an idiot, you're not married, you're a widower. (laughs) And, you know, I'm in that whole struggle world that I'd never been in. Anyway, in the process of this, one particular night, I decided to tune into Trini. And I said, you know, is it okay if I fall in love again? Like, I needed permission, which she ignored. And I went through a metaphysical process. And in this metaphysical process, in front of me, and I'll keep it short, there is a spring of water, which is about a meter high. And I know that this is love. And I keep throwing it on her, then she's not there. And I'm still throwing it on her, but she's not there anymore. And then I'm realizing she's covered in like a grey shroud. And this shroud is my emotional attachment to her. Now, I've been through 18 months of learning that emotional attachments are not love. And I've been through the shock of learning it all my life. What I thought was love was never more than an emotional attachment. Yes, of course it was human love. But unconditional, I'd never got close to it. And I was enlightened. And this was a shock. An enlightened person. How could this be? How could this possibly be happening? Because I'd certainly put into place all the spiritual aspects of enlightenment. Anyway, this process continued with her. And then she said, I need you to let me go, this is not love, I need you to let me go. And I knew, I said, no, this isn't love, I want to let go. And I sat there with this, in this metaphysical experience, and suddenly there came a moment when there's something rising up, and I thought, oh my God, I'm going to be able to let go, to be able to just let her go. And I knew, when I let go, I would never see her again. Certainly in this lifetime, all the idea, you know, we'll carry on together, our life will continue. This I knew all that had ended. All my story was coming to an end. She was going on her journey, I was going on mine. And they were separate journeys. They weren't the same journey anymore. And so there came the moment, Rick, I let go. Now for me, I can't describe it. It was an amazing experience. But this water this lifted up. Suddenly it was three meters high. And automatically I stepped into it and I stayed there, and I experienced this unconditional love. And that changed my life more powerfully than spiritual enlightenment. Hmm. I felt love for me. I knew I had the knowing of who I am. If you read my other books, you'll realize there's a lot more to this story that I'm not saying. I went through an incredible process. That changed me more than anything. That changed me more than anything. Up until then, I had one view of enlightenment. After that, there was, uh, you know, spiritual enlightenment with unconditional love. It was a much, much bigger picture, mm. an enormously bigger picture. Now, I'm not making any statements about how many other people have found that. I'm simply saying that changed my whole relationship with enlightenment, changed. It became more personal and more universal, simultaneously. That's because nice. I am the universe. Mm-hmm. I am the universe, so how could it be less? People say, you know, I am the universe, but they have no personal. You can't have one without the other. If you're the universe, then you have a, you're something.
0: Yeah, no, that's good. I like that. Sometimes it's fun to refer to traditional scriptures and all just because, you know, if people have been saying the same thing for thousands of years and some guy comes along and says it now, you know, it sort of lends a little bit of extra credence to it, or credibility, you know, it's like, okay, there's a, you know, there's been this map, and, and others have followed the map and found the same things in the territory as we're now finding. Seek
1: ye first the kingdom of heaven.
0: And all else to be added unto thee.
1: And, and you know what? I, when this all began, that was my, that was my running. That was, that was my running, buddy. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. I looked at everybody including our local vicar, and I talked with them, and I realized that me and every one of these people was seeking first all that could be added unto me. Without having to seek seekers. And what he said, I think it was translated right, seek ye first, me, mm. the kingdom of heaven, which to me was a state of conscience. So I was crazy. I decided to do that. And I did that. I was broke. I had no money. I lived on the verge of, forget fear, I was way past that. I used all my fear up at the time I was 49, my whole quota was gone, I did that, I lived that and it's true, if you seek that thirst to the exclusion of everything else, you find the kingdom of heaven, because the kingdom of heaven is within, it's a state of consciousness, there's nothing out there, there's nothing up in the sky, there's no heaven up there, it's a state of consciousness. But. I never met anybody else who didn't think I was mad. They all said, you're crazy, you've got to make an income. I said, yeah, I should do, but I never did. But then when, I, when this thing happened, strange things happened. A mother died. And suddenly, my mother died. Suddenly, money that had been tied up for 15 years. Suddenly, there's money available. Suddenly, I've got a home. When I awakened first, it became enlightenment, it changed my life. The second one. Unconditional love was an even bigger change. And now I sort of look back. You see, Rick, I've got a plan. I'm planning to maybe book out Carnegie Hall, New York, to give a talk when I'm 100. <laughs> and now, let me just say this for the interest of it. All mammals, according to science, live seven times longer than it takes to develop their physical body. So mayflies, it doesn't take long. Rats, it doesn't take long so their life. But us, it takes us 20 years to develop our physical body and then 26 years to have our brain fully developed, if it ever is. So that's 184 years, you know, seven times 26. Not many around, is there?
0: Not
1: too many. And let's just say the physical body, 140, not many around. Well, I happen to believe that we should in fact live that long that biologically we're geared for it, but what we do is we criticise and ourselves, we attack ourselves. Mentally, where most people are attacking themselves all day, which is a mental and emotional attack, attack. That's become subconscious, so this subconscious thing is happening to most people all day and every day. I don't do that. I plan each day to focus and be conscious, and I have little ways to help me be conscious. I teach how to do this in my intenses, to be conscious. Well, you cannot help but grow just by being conscious. You grow. I'd like you to take on what I said, so you can live to be 140,
0: so I can play with big boys instead of little kids <laughs> in their 90s. I'll come to your Carnegie Hall thing. I should be in about 90 by that time or something. No I'll be about 86. Really? Yeah, I'm 66 now. I'm 79. I know. <laughs> I wanted to ask you if you define enlightenment as being sort of first grade in a sense you you kind of referred to it using the school metaphor and uh you know you thought maybe by now after you know another 50 60 70 30 years since your enlightenment at 49 you're up to about the fourth grade um you know how would you Imagine that somebody who has, you know, graduated high school, graduated college, has a, has a PhD, so to speak, using this metaphor. Uh, how are they functioning compared to somebody in the first or fourth grade?
1: I don't make comparisons.
0: And where do you see this going? I mean, what, are, what is the potential for development of consciousness? The
1: potential of a human being is stunning. You see, in my metaphysical wanderings, I meet beings of intelligence. Verify far beyond myself. We're not the only humans around on this planet. We were out in the galaxy on other planets before this earth was created, before this earth was formed. And so I mix with a lot of um, what I would call uh, intelligence. I mix with a lot of higher consciousness. If you read my books, you'll read that I write a hell of a lot more than just what I'm doing in this moment, looking at an Arata Nash, for instance. Yeah. You probably got up to the Arata National. I read that, now, yeah, it was
0: a great big huge giant being with a huge eye, and, and it was full of all these about, little tiny beings that it was... Yeah. Arata.
1: they're Arata, they, right. they're Arata. Now, you know, people can say bullshit, but when you get out into the vastness of space, when you realize that there is no space, there is no time, and there is no distance, when you realize that we're in the prison of physicality, and you come out of that prison, And you move into a fifth dimensional reality, which you're still in it, but much more liberated. And then a seventh dimensional reality. By the sixth dimension, our spiritual, our emotional and our mental bodies have become one. There's no longer any separation between them. Language as we speak it has gone. The emotions we have, have a language that is so far beyond our intellectual language, it's ridiculous I know that language and I can use it to communicate when I'm with other beings. But, you know, when I come back to this, I'm reduced to being a physical person and it feels like a reduction. I'm used to it today. But, you know, when I travel on an airplane, from my view, point of view, I look at people doing things that are going to bring them grief. Or in airports, and it brings them grief. And I look at it and think, so why did you do it? I mean... You know, an idiot could see that through, but then I realized, but it wasn't so long ago, I was that idiot. I was doing exactly what they're doing. You know, if you criticize yourself, and most people doing it all day, you're going to get sick. Then you turn around and try to get healthy. But all the time criticizing yourself. When you've decided that you are absolutely perfect, that um, God loves you, you love yourself, and you live from that point of view with an enormous sense of humor, realizing that there was no point coming to this planet if you didn't have a sense of humor, that um, when you do that, then, I don't know, Just I just see life as beautiful. I see it as perfect. Let me give you my viewpoint. Seven plus billion people, most of them think it's a shitty world. I don't see that. The world is perfect. In every moment of your life, you are creating the direction and the content of every moment of your life. Think about that sometimes. That makes, you're creating your own reality. You know, that puts that in a whole nother bracket. This has been going on, let's just say conservatively, a thousand lifetimes. So what's happening in this lifetime is what we've been creating in a thousand lifetimes, which has got a tremendous momentum behind it. So it doesn't just stop when we stop. It doesn't just stop. And so, when I look at it, every human being is in the classroom they've created. Now, some of us have created grim classrooms, terrible classrooms, but we created that. We're immortal beings. We live for eternity. We have forever, which is a very long time. And in this, in this classroom, everybody's in their perfect position. Now, if they don't like that position, they think that we've got to have money to get me out. That's part of the illusion. If you don't like the position, then all you've got to do is change your relationship with yourself and your whole life changes. And all you've got to do is decide, hey, I'm okay. I'm not the person my thoughts keep describing. Mm. I am okay. Begin with that and you can climb out of it.
0: Yeah. Easier said than done for some people. I mean, if you're in Syria, you know, getting gassed by Assad and, and, you know. I've been there. Pardon? I've
1: been there. I've been there. Syria? I've done all. I've done all that. I and, mean, I created all my back injury, all my pain, all my suffering. I did it very well.
0: That's true. You've been through a lot. There are people who have it even worse in this life. I mean, there are kids sold into prostitution and slavery and Bombay and, you know, all kinds of really horrendous situations. And it's, I, I just want to sort of avoid the attitude, which I, I don't think you have, that oh well, they created their their own karma, their own situation, and that may or may not be true on some level, but some people follow from that to think that they should just live it out, whereas the guy I'm gonna interview Monday night, Andrew Harvey, is just passionate about spiritual activism, that we shouldn't use the, the philosophical understanding that people create their own situation to absolve us from doing our darndest to help them out of it.
1: This is why I travel every year. I spend five months traveling the world and that's not the most comfortable thing I could do always. <laughs> right. that's, that's why I do it, because yes, people get themselves in this situation, but then I got myself in that situation, yeah. and it took me a long time to get, get out of it. If I can help people out in five days, nothing gives me greater pleasure, so I absolutely agree with spiritual activism, although I'd never heard that. I bet he's American. They come up with he's words British, like He's them.
0: British, he's British.
1: Oh, well, it's a good word anyway. Yeah. I'm on his side. <laughs> I agree
0: with that. Considering where you have traveled, so to speak, not on this Earth, but you know all the various realms and dimensions and whatnot that you are familiar with and have traveled to, do you kind of regard the Earth as a... I think you might have actually said this earlier, that it's sort of a kindergarten planet, that you can only progress so far on this, on this Earth and then there might be other places where it might be more appropriate for you to be.
1: Do we want to make this more complicated? I don't know, do we? Go ahead. Okay, we're on a three-dimensional reality. If you get a book with 300 pages, each page is three-dimensional. There are over 300 um, three-dimensional realities in our three-dimensional reality. We're on one page. There's a lot of other pages. The good news is you don't have to do all those pages. So what I'm trying to say here is that life is so much more vast, I realize, than anything I can comprehend. Now, I'm in a peculiar position. We all have our intellect, and an intellect can take so much. One of the things I did years ago when I was on my spiritual path, and that probably is why I am who I am today, I began to realize I'm trying to take, let's say, to create a metaphor, the contents of a 1,000-gallon of a water tank. And I'm a one pint. No, let's say one gallon. How do I put a 1,000 gallons into one? I realized I couldn't do that, and I tried Have really to expand hard. to the container. No, then I realized, supposing I put the one gallon in the 1,000, what would happen? That's what I did, and it really took my whole world apart, but that's in essence what I did. And so when I travel a multiverse, when I travel a multiverse, intellectually there's not much I can bring back, but in consciousness, I am aware of growing, I'm aware of things that I can't even have a concept of because we're not an intellectual being. We are beings of conscious intelligence. We've become beings of subconscious intellect. But that's not what we are. We're beings of conscious intelligence. There is no limit to intelligence. Forget the IQ test. Intelligence just keeps rising. Einstein was right. You can use intelligence. I didn't even find the barrel with it in until I was in my 40s, and then I found this barrel, and it said on it, intelligence. So I ripped the top off, and it was full of intelligence. I've been taking it out and using it ever since. But it takes me where my intellect cannot go. There I'm stopped, but I'm still growing in consciousness. When I do an, in a, um, an intensive, that consciousness moves through me. Now, my words are usually very simple, but they tell me the power behind them is pretty amazing. That's the consciousness. People say, why don't you teach us and we'll teach what you do? And my answer to that is very simple. If you have my consciousness, you don't need my words. And if you have my words and you don't have my consciousness, then those words are just empty words. Mm -hmm. It's the consciousness that speaks the words, the words are the vehicle. It's the propellant that makes the words have energy that impact the people. And um, so, I find enormous growth in growing, but I can't just take it and write it down and say, here you are. I can pass it all on. In fact, my book I'm writing right now, I I put this dilemma. Is there going to be a time when I can actually do this? Pan says, yes, there is. Do what? When I can actually share to a deeper level, as yet, my intellect doesn't touch. Now, probably Bruce Cathy or, or um, Bruce Lipton, they could explain it far more than me because he's got quantum physics to take him. I'd like to talk to that guy sometime. Mm. But because he's got quantum physics, I have experienced the Taurus, you know, the T-O-R-U-S. I was experiencing it for 10 years until one day I learned what it was on Thrive, the movie. I nearly fell over and cried. I mean, it was such an impact on me. I thought oh my god I've been with these I see them in the thousands I mean they're in every cell as well as everybody and so what these um, quantum physicists describe, I often see and connect with but I can't bring that back and write about it or even talk about it so I write as much as I can but I talk about what is life what are you this is what to me is what it's about what's the point of talking about the outer limits of the garden, if the person's having trouble making a cup of tea in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. That's where I focus now, let's get this tea, let's get the kettle boiling.
0: Yeah, and you said that very early in the interview too, essentially you said, you know, speak to the level of consciousness of the listener, you want to present something that's actually useful and relevant to the person where they're at, you know, and not just sort of entertain them with stuff that's far beyond the realm of their...
1: Now, in the earlier days, I did do a bit of that. I did do a bit of the cosmic entertaining. (laughs) And then then I realized this isn't what it's about. This isn't what it's about. But ever since the experience of unconditional love, which I still experience for myself, I experience it for you. Mm -hmm. I experience it for everybody. I don't have to know them because we're all one energy. I can't experience it for me without experiencing it for you. Even if you got insulting. I would still love you unconditionally, even if I wasn't so enchanted with your personality.
0: (laughs) In defense of uh, the kind of, however you just described it, the sort of cosmic entertainment or something, I I realize that you wouldn't want to make that the predominant focus of your teaching because it would just get people all caught up in eye candy or imaginary stuff. But I think it is useful in that it gives people... a kind of a broader vision of how grand and vast and marvelous the universe actually is. I mean you have to bring it back down to what's practical for you but it's you know some people actually have a fairly limited appreciation of how marvelous the creation is and it's nice to have a a glimpse into the incredible intelligence and diversity and richness and of life proliferation of of life yeah on all dimensions and throughout all
1: in fact, Rick, that's the most common thing that people e-book me, or Facebook me, and um, email me. Your books just stretch my world out.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm trying to books. say.
1: Exactly. They love having their world stretched out, and I love doing it.
0: Yeah, and and that's what I—that's the main thing I got from your book. I, I, as I was reading it, I was thinking, God, you know, this is it's just so. I wouldn't want to just focus exclusively on this stuff, but it's really nice to to dive into it every now and then and just get a feeling for. How many, well, what does it say in the Bible, in my father's house there are many mansions. How many different realities and dimensions and worlds and beings and all that stuff there are out there. When you go
1: into something like the black hole and everything that you've learned says this is not possible, (laughs) and yet you're going in it and you're finding a, a staggering intelligence... that that defines how it works. It tells you what it does. It takes stagnation from one galaxy or solar system and relocates it into another one where it's no longer stagnant. It does swallow, literally, solar systems that have become stagnant. What it did for me and what it showed me is like you can't go into an experience like that and come out the same. You just can't come out the same. There's just no way. You You can't go back to the person you were now I've been to a, a, a realm of dragons, now I'm being provocative and I've seen dragons of a vastly greater intelligence than humans and you sort of think, okay, four legs not so smart, two legs very smart <laughs> and I had to really struggle with that. These dragon things and their way of reproducing, I mean it's like our way, okay we enjoy our way of reproducing but it's archaic, they do it energetically They have a purely energetic reproduction where one body just breaks down and another soul comes in and takes the energy of that body and recreates about a quarter size one for itself and then starts a whole growing process. The way they live, I came out of that. I was aware that to go into the experience I had to grow to get in. And I was aware of a process and then to come out, like I came out with a clarity and a certainty. Of proportions that I didn't know existed. Like we would say today, oh well if you're like that, that's arrogant. To me I've become very careful with words like that. To have great clarity is wonderful, but therefore I don't look and realize everybody should have this. Now I, when I was 35 I put my, myself on a spiritual path. At that age I wasn't sure whether spirituality was in a bottle or outside of a bottle. And from that point, I never looked back. Everything, first and foremost, was I'm here to grow. And and my belief was I grow through pain and suffering. So like you said, I put myself... Read my book, Getting There. I've done pain and suffering, but today I don't do pain and suffering. Today I talk to my body. I love my body. God, it's a beautiful body. (laughs) Hasn't got much hair on its head. Grass doesn't grow on busy roads, so I can deal with that. (laughs) And I, I love my body and I talk to it and I love life. And I, you know, I'm just full of appreciation for things. Those are things anybody can learn.
0: Yeah, that's great. A question just came in from someone who calls him or herself EE. E. And the, the question is very simple What is the purpose of our existence and why does suffering exist?
1: That's probably an unanswerable question. And I'm not going to just try and be clever. We exist, she exists because she is God. And God um, is not a static state, is growing in consciousness. And so if you were to say that God um, created um, creation in which God could grow as every living thing, organism that there ever was, then that's the purpose. Why is there suffering? We created that. I've done it, been there, and I no longer do it. So I can tell you, on very good authority, we create suffering. And if in your thoughts, you do not think, if you, the truth is, and I'm speaking to EE, if you, the truth is you are a magnificent, metaphysical, multi-dimensional, immortal being of love and light. Not many people focus on that in a day. If you were to focus on being who you are in a day, suffering comes to an end. But we don't live consciously, we live subconscious. Subconscious means you're living a whole program of a thousand lifetimes of pain and suffering. It's all there in your subconscious of every type of mental and emotional aberration and um, trauma you can have. It's all in the subconscious. This is where your pain and suffering is. It's never in the moment. There has absolutely never been a moment filled with pain and suffering. We can take it in and hold on to it. But in that moment, we could let go of it. The person on the cusp of creating choosing suicide is, on the, is also on the cusp. They could, at that moment, choose life. They choose death. They come back and do it again, of course.
0: There's something you said in, um, about your own enlightenment that I found puzzling, and maybe you can explain it a little bit. You said that um, it almost sounded like you became a walk-in. You said that the Michael soul walked out and Mikhail, however you pronounce it, Mikhail soul walked in. And I've never really thought of enlightenment that way, that you're actually replacing souls or
1: something. Enlightenment is not that way. Oh. Now, I was, I'm telling my story there. Okay. This is not other people's story. Okay. I wasn't going to go into this.
0: <laughs> I keep dragging you into all kinds of things.
1: You, you've opened up a can of worms now. You're a soul. I'm a soul. And the normal way for a soul to come in is is to come in to a developing fetus around three to five months and then come in and then develop with that personality. Sometimes a, a soul that is um, highly enlightened can bypass that. Generally, they are very spiritually advanced. Now, Michael spent last his last incarnation in a monastery before he died of consumption or TB. He was, would spend weeks in meditation and contemplation. In fact, he spent half a lifetime in it. Uh, but he saw that he had the, the potential or the probability to become enlightened in this incarnation. Now, he didn't want to incarnate. He incarnated because my late wife came first. And so I decided I would come then. And so I did that lifetime. And if I did find enlightenment, I was going out of there straight. And so one of in my soul family was another being, another soul, more enlightened, much more enlightened on a fifth dimensional reality. But couldn't stay there because a the fifth dimensional reality has balanced emotions. And I hadn't balanced my emotions. So I had the spirituality to be there, but not the emotionality. And believe me, this is the powerhouse. And so I knew that I had to incarnate here again to get my emotions sorted out. Well, when Michael said that, showed me his probability and he showed it to me before we came onto this planet, the probability was there quite strongly. He said, I'm off. I said, well, can I have your body? And so we made an agreement that if he left his body, I could have it. We should have written a bit more small print, like how the body would be, like in a good position, you know, healthy. Anyway, he became enlightened and he did become enlightened. And he did heal his own body. And he left. Hmm. Straight away. There's another story in that. Then I walked in. But Michael, such a strong character. His personality was so strong. I'm in a body. Every cell in this body is stamped with his personality. Hmm. And I came in with an emotional issue. So emotionally I wasn't strong enough to deal with it instantly. And so... I went into denial, and in and out, I, st- I only came out of denial about twice in 20 years. Now I'll be honest, when I stepped into unconditional love and let go of Trini, in that moment, I was aware of who I am, mixile, and I decided I would own it from that moment on, I would never pretend. And so then I had to, in my book, I had to be honest and write that, which I never really wanted to share with anybody. But today, when people say you, I mean, do they mean Michael or do they mean mixael Now, I've been mixael for, for over since I was 50, and you know, nearly 30 years. But I haven't owned it; I've only owned it in about the last seven years, eight hmm. years. Strange story. But I've met other people. I'm a walk-in, and I know they weren't. One woman said, "Do you think I'm a work in God, she was so freaky. She was not only a walk-in, she wasn't even, she didn't even come from a carbon-based life form huh. where she came in from. She came from a silo- silicon-based life form, and although she was in a carbon-based body, she was struggling. She I was struggling. And it helped her to meet somebody to say, okay, you can, it takes, took me 20 years. I've met people who've done this in in like 20 weeks, hmm. it took me 20 years to sort it out. I'm not proud of that.
0: But I did. <laughs> Well, everything happens in its own time.
1: Exactly.
0: Incidentally, as I said to you the other day when we spoke, you cover a vast amount of material in all your books and probably your seminars and everything, and there's a lot about you I don't know. So if there's something you feel like talking about that I'm not thinking to bring up, just throw it in there and we'll talk about it. But here's one thing that I... I took some notes as I was reading your book of things that just sort of jumped out at me as being kind of interesting. Here's one where you said aspects of us live in different realities and dimensions simultaneously. So you and I might be in this dimension, carrying on as, you know, Rick in Iowa and Michael in Australia, and yet there could be other aspects of us in other dimensions doing something entirely different, if I understood what you were saying correctly.
1: Okay, Uh, everything is energy. A soul is energy. When the soul has, the thing that ages or keeps a soul young is experience. In other words, if you did ten lifetimes fully spiritually aware and focused in consciousness, you would grow far more than if you did a thousand without ever having thinking of spirituality. You would grow far more in the ten years. So, generally speaking, soul maturity is to do with experience. Now, we are souls. A soul is energy. At a certain point in its development, a soul can split itself into a hundred or more. So that means then, a soul can put aspects of itself in many parallel realities at the same time.
0: Almost like seeds or something, you get a pine tree and it creates a pine cone and there's a lot of seeds in that and they go all over and create more pine trees.
1: But but you can have many of you through many of the three dimensions. I have a body waiting for me in a 5th dimensional reality. Now this body is in a, what you call, a reality box, if you like. In other words, it's held between heartbeats.
0: Kind of suspended animation kind of thing?
1: Suspended animation. It could be there a million years and Hmm. it still ages the time between heartbeats. And so we look on ourselves in terms of the personality we are and other personalities. That is like an ant regarding us and trying to understand us, as for us to use our personality to try to understand us. And so in my metaphysical travels, I experience us in futures. I experience humans one day what we will be. I experience, you know, if I was to say that those future humans came back so that we could experience our future and came back in a time before Um, Archaeology says we exist. People say I'm crazy. Happily that did happen, but that's beside the point. So life is of a vastness and multi-layered to a vastness that our brain just doesn't comprehend. What we tend to do is make the simplicity of vastness, we tend to complicate it and make it small. Mm. That doesn't work. And so when I say that I teach what works, I have a way of looking at life. You know, I do a lot of counselling. People phone me up and they've got problems. I have a way of looking at it and just see straight to well, if you did this. Um, it's like, um, what do they call it, parallel thinking. or I mean, all thinking should be um, in the moment. But people, if they've got a problem, I mean, Einstein says it beautifully. Humanity today has a problem. The consciousness that creates the problem is not the consciousness that can fix it. Right. Today, humanity is sick. Like every three and a half seconds, a new cancer, every seven seconds, new dementia, every one and a half, a new heart attack. I mean, God, how do we stay alive? But the point is that sickness is a state of consciousness that believes it has all the answers. It looks at life and says, I know what it is. I look at life and I realize I have no idea what it is. To me, life is a mystery and I never want to solve it. But I want to dive into it forever. Mm. I want to keep going into the mystery forever and ever and ever and ever. You know, answers don't mean anything to me. I like to inquire and to keep going. The left brain always wants answers. Of course, I get so many left brain people because the world is today about 85% left brain dominant and that's not bad but the future is going to have to be whole brain Mm. left brain dominance has its own future but that's not my future and so we're in a position today that we've never been in before we have two futures in front of us one that you could say is ever-changing newness and one is more of the same oldness one is more fear based one is more love based now there's no right or wrong There's no punishment, should or shouldn't, in every moment of their life. We create the direction and the content of every moment of their life. The last 100,000 years of choosing are now at the point where they're beginning to manifest where we go. Hmm. Now choosing has manifest a very disturbed and sick humanity. We've created that. We've created all of it.
0: I think I got the sense from your book that you feel that, uh, and it it seems obvious to me, that um, there's a greater and greater polarity taking place on the earth between people who are choosing one direction or choosing the other direction, and uh, where do you see that leading or how do you see that resolving, if it will?
1: Well, the, the, the choice is not mental, it's in living. Yeah. And again, I bring you back, it's your relationship with yourself. You don't need to spiritually know anything, I know way too much. I sometimes wish I knew a fraction of what I know, and what I know is growing. You know, one day I think, what am I going to do with all this? Because I can't... Anyway... There must be a reason. And so, consciousness is about growth, not what we know spiritually. And so, we can have a, any person, atheist or whatever, what's in our heart, our heart, our relationship with ourselves, The quiet moments of our thoughts, they're the ones that determine where we're going. You know, I find in my thinking now, I'm never criticizing other people. I've got a son who doesn't speak to me. I love him. And every time I think of him, I think of him with love. He doesn't have to have me in his life. If he wants me out of it, if that works for him, he's got a perfect right to that. But that doesn't mean I have to have any reaction. It means that I can love him completely. That is a whole different relationship with life. I meet people who do unpleasant things to us and try to cheat us. But then I look at me and I think, so what's that showing me in myself? And I just smile, and if they cheated me, okay, they needed that more than I did. And I just continue loving and moving on.
0: Turn the other cheek, so so to speak.
1: My life is no longer react, jump, react, jump. You know, a series of reactions that moves it along. Mm-hmm. My life is like a, a a gentle moving. God, life is so beautiful. Mm. We create it. Everybody. This is what I love to do. Give me five days, nine in the morning till six at night. I spend showing people how to recreate their life, how to have a life that is joyful and uplifting. You know, I get people go into remission with sicknesses simply because they go through a shift in consciousness. I shouldn't have said that.
0: No, that's great. That's a good thing to have said. A question came in from someone named Lynn in Idaho. She said, you remember earlier you used the word Doubtsville. She said, how did you get out of Doubtsville and find your direction after enlightenment?
1: You know, one of the things I talk a lot about it again is trust. We do not trust. Humanity has no trust. We have insurance. We don't have trust. And we traded them a long time ago. I've learned to trust. So what is trust? Is there anybody who doesn't know what it is? Of course there isn't. Everybody intellectually knows what trust is. Rick, this is one of the dangers that we live in. If we intellectually know something, then we automatically, the intellect says, so I know what that is. So if we understand, it never occurs to us we could be wrong. I understand. We always say, therefore I'm right. That's breathtaking arrogance, we never say, I understand, of course I could be wrong, hmm. That I can go with understanding. Sorry, what was your question? then the question
0: was, you know, you mentioned you had the word, you used the word Doubtsville, like I guess you went through okay, a long yeah. period where you had a lot of doubt, and how did you get out of that?
1: Trust. Okay, so trust is something you'll find that you have to create, nobody has trust unless they create it. There's a real paradox to this, so I won't follow. But we have to create our lives. We've got to create everything. And we did a lot before we even got here, but we're still learning creation. Every day is a lesson in creation. That's all we're doing, learning creation. So one of those things is learn to create trust. Who do you trust? You. What do you trust? That I am, in fact, in truth, a magnificent, metaphysical, multidimensional, immortal being of love and light. If you trust that and, and you live that trust, your life changes. It just changes. There's no mystery to it. It changes. This is how you get out of doubt. You've got to begin to where you focus your energy flows. And when your energy is focused flowing, that means you're flowing toward what you're focusing on. Now, if you're focusing on aggression, you're attracting aggression to you, and aggression is going out from you. Like attracts like. You know, I'm only just touching the edges of this. Sure. You know, We could really get in. If you give me another four hours, we could really get into it. But at the moment, I'm still trying to put a lot into a little space and skipping over it. But so creating trust is a very difficult thing to do because you've got to trust you. And it has to be unconditional. There could be no such thing as conditional trust. And So when you start to trust yourself, immediately you'll find, well, 10 times a day I've betrayed my trust in myself. It's okay. That's okay, as long as you keep on trusting yourself. Gradually, consciousness will realize okay, there's something different happen. This guy is trusting himself, and he's not stopping. No matter how time, many times he fails, he or she is continuing. Then, consciousness is really attracted by that, and very gradually, trust grows. I trust myself totally. If I trust myself, can I have fear? Can I have anxiety? can I have worry? How can I have them and trust? If you're trusting yourself a hundred percent, you don't have those or doubt. But you've got to create it and it's not everybody today wants an overnight fix. Doesn't happen.
0: Something that grows. You know, one
1: day the world will discover me and I'll say, oh look, the spiritual teacher, he's just appeared, yeah, only for the last 30 years, been walking toward hearing. <laughs>
0: Okay, I'm going to shift gears and ask you a completely different kind of question. You were a farmer for many years. You you still are, and you have a garden that you love to tend. And there was a whole section in your book where you are talking about cooperation with nature and Davis and you, you described this situation in which there was a healthy forest on the astral level, even though the physical forest on the earthly level was totally devastated. Um, you ended this whole thing about genetically modified crops and how sort of these lower astral entities are, are somehow involved in, in genetically modified uh, agriculture. And uh, so maybe you could kind of like riff a little bit yeah. on that whole thing about being in tune with nature and the subtler dimensions of being in tune with nature, both in terms of agriculture and forests and, and all of that stuff.
1: Okay, so in a way you could tie this also in with a hierarchy because there's a higher and there's lower. And the same with everything is energy. There are higher energies and lower energies. And lower energies in the astral world are pretty grim. And the alcoholic does see monsters. They do see pink elephants, you know. They actually see them. They are in their reality. Now we would say, rubbish, you're just having a DT. But no, it's not. In their reality, they've now moved from the reality of somebody talking to them into a completely lower astral level of reality where those things exist. Now in the fifth dimension there is a lot of genetically modified crops but that's all done with the cooperation of nature. And when you see a tree that is illuminated at light at night by fluorescence that originally came from the ocean, it's an incredible sight. And when you realize that the tree and the fluorescence are both grown in consciousness to go through this process, but we don't do that. We force it on, and we do it for more money. And so the crops are of a lower energy, a much, much lower energy. Therefore, they attract, and they attract very powerfully low energy astral creatures. And when you see these slug like things, feeding on the astral level, because everything has a metaphysical, the metaphysical always precedes the physical. You and I are looking at each other, the physical image, but we're also two metaphysical beings looking at each other, but we don't see the metaphysical. And so these slug-like creatures and other things, some of them just scream, and they feed off this lower energy of the, of the physical plants that have been genetically altered. So now, that energy is in the plant, and we're heading in a really dangerous direction with GM, Really, and it's spreading rapidly in America.
0: Oh, it is, yeah. It's a
1: very, very dangerous, and it'll come to a collapse, and when it comes to collapse, agriculture collapse with it, and I can foresee that we've got some very nasty times ahead of us. Nobody's going to like at all, but we're creating it because we, do- we just buy it. We just buy the stuff.
0: Yeah, there's a big battle here in the United States about it. And so, yeah,
1: go ahead. And equally, there are higher levels and then your higher levels in the nature kingdom are like the nature spirits and the devas and the over-lighting devas, shall we say, of a forest. You're getting into some much higher levels. But it's like we know of power points on the earth. But do you ever get anybody writing about power drains? Mm. There's always a counterpart. There are drains that are sucking energy out Of the earth. So PowerPoint's bringing it in. Luckily, most of the energy sucks are taking out negative energy because if they didn't, we would be overwhelmed with our own negativity. And so, in a way, the planet and the whole metaphysical structure of the planet is taking care of us. But I guess, you know, life changes remarkably when you stop being a physical person and you start being a spiritual being. And you do that consciously and you keep that consciousness with you. Life changes incredibly because you look at things and instead of a reaction, you look at it and you think, no, and you do something and say something entirely different. You just change your future in that moment. Hmm.
0: You just alluded to where humanity might end up as a result of genetically modified crops. Do you have any general overall sense? I mean, there are a lot of people, for instance, who feel like there are so many structures that in society, in the economy, and in so many other things that, you know, in various industries that have no place in an enlightened world, and that if we actually are going to somehow transition to an enlightened world, that a lot of things are just going to have to completely collapse and then, you know, something better be built from the ashes of that. Do, Do you see sort of a cataclysmic or catastrophic transition phase like that, or do you think it could maybe not be quite so dramatic? I
1: think the metaphysical always precedes the physical and the metaphysical is already going through that and I suspect the physical will catch up we won't like that at all but it doesn't have to be that way it's all still a probability everything of our immediate future is only a probability Pat you know enough people like me and many of the people you talk with are traveling the world are helping to change the consciousness the Uh, many wonderful people who send inspiring things on Facebook and and through the work people like you do which more and more puts what we're about among more and more people that changes the whole probability pattern but to go back to what I said the world we're on is an old world a new world is already here but where it's difficult it's a higher frequency but it occupies exactly the same space Mm. You know, we can come at a, an X-ray machine can look at bones that we look at and can't see. And we say, OK, well, they're there. So it can see them. Well, the same thing is going on on other waves. And so there are many, many levels of reality. And we have a, a humanity that will stay, that will polarize toward the old. They will never see anything of a new world. They will see a rapidly deteriorating world. And they'll go with it other people and they will select themselves i would like to think it might be as high as 15 between to 20% of the population a lot of people reckon 3 to 5% will do it but i like to think 15% might be up there but they will see a world of more love of more compassion they will see examples of people who care flash mobs that are very uplifting they will see those and they'll see the people who walk through it <laughs> not looking at these idiots, <laughs> what do they think they're doing? And so these two people are emerging now, but we've created ourselves over the last 100,000 lifetimes. But we have to go with the direction we created. Now, there's going to be at least the next 20, 25 years at least, where people can jump off the wall and move you know, toward the polarity that will lift them. But I still think they will be the minority of people. But that is happening right now. I do see a beautiful world. Now, is there a world of horror? Yes, there is. But uh, me looking at it and focusing on it doesn't help it at all. There are plenty of people who do that and maybe have the skills to help it. I have the skills to show people there's life and there is an illusion. And they both occupy the same space. Mm. Illusion overwhelms you because we're saturated in it but I'll show you how to get through that and see life in a way that you can live it and when you live that life then you're affecting the energy of every human being and I'm aware that every time I have a group of people whose whole frequency is lifted we've measured that so we know it does whose whole frequency is lifted I know that that's just another drop in the ocean but it's another lifting of the frequency of all humanity. Mm. And this is why Andrew Harvey and does what he does and I do what I do and all of us and you do what you do. Because in our own way we're all putting in our little tiny bit to lift that consciousness. But that's not going to happen for all people. People will see the increasing breakdown. Terrorism will grow, but so will loveism and careism.
0: And it actually is, you know. I mean, I, I often get emails and see articles about some really good stuff that's happening in the world that doesn't make the nightly news. I mean, there's some marvelous technologies emerging. There are certain cures for various diseases that are being found and, and all kinds of good stuff. I mean, there's, you know, solar power is proliferating in India and other places. And, oh. and so it's, it's like a lot of this stuff just doesn't make the headlines because it's not as flashy as the latest bombing or the you know, latest mass murder.
1: We're caught up in the position where change, like it's Shinto religion in Japan, they have temples and, and shrines everywhere. Every 20 years they pull them down. They rebuild it on the bit of land next to it, hmm. and rebuild the whole thing with new materials. Hmm. Why? Because in the Shinto religion, nothing in nature is permanent.
0: Hmm.
1: So change is part of life, and that's their religion.
0: Kind of like and the so- Tibetan sand paintings.
1: Exactly, and so it is with us. Everything is changing. Right now, change is breaking down the human inertia. Humanity become inert. We're not moving. We're not growing in consciousness. And it's very simple. If we're a conscious species, we're designed to grow in consciousness, within using intelligent consciousness. Do you know you cannot even use intelligence subconsciously? How about that? Hmm. How many people realize that? Think about it sometime you can't do that. It, c- intelligence operates in the moment, I always call it in conscious intelligence, and so change and, and inertia have now, are now colliding, mm. there'll be people who, who are terrified and will cling to inertia, and there are people who say okay I've ridden that one, man I'm on this new one, and they'll hop onto a new one and they'll go for a new ride. They don't spiritually need to know a thing, all they need to have inside themselves is, is love, and a good relationship with themselves. That's all they need. Nice. It's nothing to do with spiritual truth. It's about our relationship with ourselves. And that means everybody can be in it. It means you don't have to go out there and start reading Michael Rhodes and everybody else because you've got to learn this. It means all you've got to do in this moment is think, hey, I can choose trust. I can choose love. I can choose appreciation. How about I give them a day instead of judgment and criticism and aggression? See what happens.
0: That's great, Michael. That might be a good note to end on. I mean, you couldn't have said it better. Is there any little thought that, you know, anything like throw in before we wrap it up that we haven't covered?
1: One of the things I I have said is it's where you focus is where your energy is flowing. Your focus is all your thoughts and your emotions. And most people's thoughts and emotions are complete confusion, going every which way all the same time. And so their life is completely confused and directionless. And a few fixate on money, and that's all they get in life, money, nothing else. And a few have a broader view of it. So be aware where you focus energy flows. If you focus that uh, you are a worthwhile and beautiful being, and that becomes your focus, you'll find that life will honor that. If you honor life, life will honor you. If you honor self, you honor life. If you honor life, life will honor you. So honor yourself in all ways, whatever that means to you. Honor yourself and life will honor you.
0: Beautiful. Nice point. Well, thank you. I I have really enjoyed talking to you. I I would keep going, but I sort of feel like for some reason, I feel like two hours is probably about right for one of these interviews. Otherwise, people say, it's too long, Archer.
1: We can always do it again, another
0: year. Yeah, yeah. Besides, you're going to live to be 140 and I, I guess I might as well too, so...
1: And you might as well turn, turn Yeah, what the heck. <laughs> as long as we're having fun. <laughs> I, I don't have an attachment to that. That's my direction, because it's possible. Now, whether I get there or not is completely immaterial. I don't have an attachment. We create our content and the direction. That's the direction I'm looking at. To you, I would like to say thank you very much for having me on this. For two years, my lovely wife has wanted me to be the Buddha at the gas pump. <laughs> And you have your process to get into you, and then when suddenly, just before Christmas, we got an email. Okay, you're on in January. She, you made her day. I tell you, she skipped and ran around the house. And I took it a bit more casually, <laughs> but she was over the moon. I think people like you and Lilu May, some people like that, mm-hmm. do an incredible um, service to other people because you attract a lot of people together and and you make it possible. And so I think that's an amazing thing.
0: Well, it's, I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, you know, it's really fun. And um, so you can do, That's what I do. And I hope your wife is happy with the way this turned out. I have been. I always feel like we're just scratching the surface with somebody like you, and there's so many more things we could talk about, but, you know, that's all a two-hour interview can be, and if, if people resonate with what you've been saying, then they can check out your books, and check out your... You've got to go on my website, on your website, here, yeah. yeah, go to your intensives, and and all that sort of thing. So let me make a few just general wrap-up points. I've been speaking with Michael Rhodes. If you are new to this show, then I should say that there have been well over 300 other interviews conducted and you can find them all at batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. Or if you just search for Buddha at the gas pump, it comes up number one in Google. If you go to the past interviews menu there, you'll see them all categorized in four or five different ways. This also exists as an audio podcast. I was just talking to a friend today, and she said, well, I only watch about 1 in 10 because I really don't have time, and I don't have good bandwidth on my phone, so I can't just get them to download on the fly. But that's not the way a podcast works. So you sign up for the podcast, and then it copies the things onto your computer, and then you plug your phone in or your iPod, and it copies them to that, and then you can just listen to them whenever you want while you're driving or whatever. So go. there's a menu on, on batgap.com of uh, sign up for the podcast. Check it out. And there's also a uh, place to sign up to be notified by email each time a new interview is posted. So you'll see that link. There's a donate button, which I didn't mention in the beginning, which, um, you know, donate. this whole thing is offered freely to anyone who wants to watch it, but it's supported by those who feel like supporting it. So we appreciate that. Michael mentioned that it took him two years to get on the show, we, we have hundreds of people inquiring and it's really hard to sort it out, but we've got a system going now and you'll see a menu on the site under Future Interviews I believe where it says su- Suggest a Guest. So if you have somebody in mind that you'd like to see on the show you can fill out the form on that. So thanks for listening or watching and thank you again Michael, it's really been fun, I feel like you're an old friend even though we've really just met. I
1: felt that the moment I first saw you.
0: Good. Yeah, well, probably we are, we've <laughs> probably been I'm both sure. kicking around for a long time.
1: Probably in a, another reality, we're cracking a beer right now.
0: Exactly, right, <laughs> or a, uh, who knows what they drink in those other realities, we're cracking one of those. I
1: don't drink much beer, I'll tell you, so that wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah.
0: So thanks a lot, and uh, thanks to those who've been listening or watching, and we'll see you for the next one.
1: Thank you Rick very much indeed, I've really enjoyed it, yeah, it's been me- wonderful.
0: Thank you everybody. We thought I was worth watching. Good. Bye bye. Alright.